Oh, it's such an honour, Danny. Um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here, and it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work, and you've given it a lot of thought, and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it, and I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Hello and thank you for listening to Words and Nerds. And as you can probably tell, this is not your regular host, Danny V. I'm Will Kostakis, journalist, YA author, and longtime fan of the pod. Words and Nerds is one of those special podcasts that invites authors to speak about their books, their craft, the social and political issues that influence their process, and how literature can change the world. You can subscribe to Words and Nerds wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to leave a review while you're there. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And you can find me absolutely everywhere. I mean, press pause and you'll probably hear the faint sound of me spruiking my wares in the distance, desperate for people to love me. My name is Will Kostakis. My latest novel is Rebel Gods, the conclusion to the Monuments duology that takes everything we love about fantasy novels and lets them play out in contemporary Sydney. Today, Anna Morgan returns to Words and Nerds. At the beginning of 2020, in episode 143, Anna and Danny discussed her debut, All That Impossible Space, a CBCA notable book, a coming-of-age novel exploring toxic friendships and the balance of power between teacher and student. Anna is back now with her second novel about the endless possibilities and transformative power of School is Week, titled Before the Beginning. With it, Anna cements herself as one of Australian YA's most exciting new storytellers. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Anna. Thank you, Will. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that introduction. Look, <laughs> it is our absolute pleasure to have you back. You know, your initial podcast I enjoyed as a listener, so I am really thrilled to take the reins and to be in the hot seat asking you questions this time. And like the best of Australian YA, Before the Beginning is about teens in transition. They're standing on the edge of the rest of their lives. Schoolies is that divide between them and adulthood. And it's such a transformative time. If you had a 20 second elevator ride to pitch your novel, how would you describe it? Yes, well, I'm so glad that you pointed out the transformative time of schoolies. If I had 20 seconds, I would say Before the Beginning is a dark mystery set on schoolies week. It's all about change and that moment uh, between the end of school and the start of the rest of your life. And it's also a bit of a love letter to one of my favourite places in the world, which is a beach on the south coast of New South Wales. Uh, so my four teenagers have a bit of a different schoolies week uh, instead of the classic partying that you do in a normal non-pandemic year. Uh, they escape to a, an abandoned and uninhabited island with a mysterious stranger and they camp there for the week of schoolies. 
and all of these kind of tensions that have been building between them and uh, internal tensions and fears about the future come bubbling up over that week. Now, in your initial pod, you were talking to Danny and you mentioned how difficult you found this sort of elevator pitch premise. And I want to know, a year into being a published author, has talking about your work gotten any easier? It's gotten easier in some parts. Some parts are still really difficult. Uh, I'm slightly better. I still hope I'm never actually trapped in an elevator having to pitch my work because I don't think I'd be able to say anything (laughs) in between the floors. Uh, I really like talking about before the beginning because I had a lot of different ideas that I wanted to explore in the work. Uh, So I think I'm finding it a bit easier in some ways to talk about that than all that impossible space. Um, because All That Impossible Space was my first novel and part of me didn't really know what it was about until I finished writing it as well, <laughs> which is a common experience with all writing, I think. But, uh, having the, the schoolies week as the core, schoolies week, having schoolies week and transformation and change as the core of this book has led to some really interesting discussions with the second one. You said recently that you wrote before the beginning to play out your biggest fears at the end of school. So often the best stories, especially YA stories, come from mining our own fears and insecurities and forcing ourselves to face them. What were those fears and what convinced you to confront them now? Yes, so my book is definitely very personal. Uh, A lot of people ask who my characters are based on, uh, especially a lot of friends and family, I think secretly wondering if they're in the book. And the honest answer to that is that all of all of my characters, especially these four protagonists of Before the Beginning, uh, Grace, Casper, Noah and Elsie, they're all based on me in some way. Uh, and they are all based on fears and insecurities that I had in between that finishing school, starting the rest of my life, trying to figure out who I was. Uh, So Noah is extremely academic, which I was as a teenager, and he's kind of poured his whole self into getting that top ATAR score, um, the top end of year exam score to get into the best university courses. And I was a high achieving student at a high achieving school. And for me, I was very much like Noah, so focused on that number, on the exams, on not letting other people down that I hadn't even kind of taken a breath to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I just felt like I had to be the best. Uh, and so I, I explored that a lot in his character. And um, the others, Grace is dealing with, she's extremely religious uh, and I was quite religious as a teenager as well. And she's having a, an experience, which I think is a classic experience for teenagers, whether you are religious or not, of having her worldview challenged and widened and she's uh, expanding the people she's interacting with, she's expanding what she thought her life could be and it can be a really exciting time to do that but it can also be quite disorientating and quite destabilising and Grace is finding this whole structure that she's built up around her worldview and what she thought her future would be crumbling around her. Uh, and I found that really exciting to explore over the week too. And then there's Casper, who is an artist and extremely artistic. And he's dealing with, he really wants to get into this university course, his dream course, uh, that is 
all focused on the final portfolio. And he has to present that at an interview just after schoolies week, uh, but he doesn't have a final piece. And so I suppose Casper I relate to more uh, in my later 20s as I started to write and started to think about myself as a creative person. And a lot of the challenges between creating great work and uh, how you treat the people around you, how you do look into your own life to mine for material and, and I suppose some of the ethical considerations about being an artist that I've found challenging. Casper faces up to a few of those and in a classic teenage boy way is a bit oblivious to a few of um, the people around him, including his sister, Grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's finally, there is Elsie and Elsie has always underestimated herself and she's been underestimated by the people around her. And she's really not sure what she wants to do next, uh, which is also where I was at the end of school. I kind of knew I was good at a few things, but I didn't have a clear plan. I wasn't one of those people with a five-year plan and then a 10-year plan. And I just felt quite lost um, and had a fear of being left behind by all my friends. And that's where Elsie is. She desperately wants to hold this friendship group together and uh, and she's she's trying to figure out where she's going to go next and finding out maybe she had underestimated herself and she's stronger than she thought. What's really wonderful about these characters is how distinct they feel and that interplay we get between them because they are so distinct. You mentioned you drew on parts of yourself to create them, but how then did you make them feel like their own people? Yes, it was a really exciting creative challenge for me writing this book. I knew from the beginning that I wanted to structure it over one week, over schoolies week, and that I wanted to tell the story from multiple perspectives. So each each of those four characters gets a section of the book and they narrate a few days over the week. And it was, uh, it kind of forced me to really think hard about them as characters, as people, the different ways they would think about things, the different things that they would notice. And it was also a really exciting and interesting artistic challenge to think about, okay, well, uh, what kind of vocabulary would Elsie use and what kind of vocabulary would Noah use or how would they structure their sentences or what what are different ways that they would notice things or describe things. Uh, And that that made the book better to read, I think, well, well, I hope, by making the voices distinct and placing the reader really strongly in those characters' minds. But it also helped me to get to know them better as characters. Um, And I actually used your book, Will, as a bit of a guide when I was starting to write multiple perspectives, uh, your book, The Sidekicks, from a few years ago, um, which obviously have really strong, distinct voices. Uh, So I went to to look at a few examples of other authors who'd done that really well, and that helped my process. Yeah, our process was quite similar in that I drew on when I was creating Ryan, Miles and Harley, I took little pieces of myself, but then I was like, okay, those pieces of myself, they exist, you know, separate of me. I'm going to build a separate character and a separate way of thinking around each of those aspects. And then slowly there was that huge gap between me and them. But I found that even as I was writing and I was writing somebody who wasn't me, there was still that sort of closeness because they shared a little piece of me. And now you mentioned 
Casper and his creative process and mining his lived experiences, uh, would it be fair to say that Before the Beginning is a more personal book than your debut? It's interesting. I think both books are very personal. Uh, It's an interesting question. I think I... Maybe Before the Beginning is more intentionally personal. (laughs) Maybe I'll say that. Uh, All That Impossible Space being my first novel, even though the characters in that novel are very distinct to me, I wrote it, I began writing it when I was still a teenager and it evolved with me and grew with me. And being my first novel, it is very intensely personal and I can see even in ways that I wasn't aware of how I was drawing on my own experience for that book. Uh, but I suppose with Before the Beginning, I was a little bit more experienced and a little bit more removed from my teenage, my, my teenage years, a little bit older. So I was really intentionally thinking about the big things that were going on in my life at the time. And exactly as you said, taking that kernel of the, those big conflicts I was going through or identity shifts that I was uh, going through and then growing a character around that until those characters became separate people from me, even though we shared this very, this kind of core that was the same. Does it scare you to be personal in your writing? Oh, definitely. I think, I don't think I've ever released a bit of writing that I'm proud of, or that I've really poured myself into and not had a night of absolute terror where I wake up and I think, what am I doing? Why am I putting this out into the world? it's it's a, I find it very vulnerable and uh, and and very scary, but it's also so rewarding. The absolute best moments I think that I've had been being an author are when I get a message from someone that says, "Oh, you you've nailed how I felt as a teenager, stuck in this friendship that was that was draining me, that was um, really difficult to get out of," or "You've nailed how I felt when I was." you know, deconstructing my faith or going through a big shift in worldview and knowing that someone else can understand that really deeply personal thing. To me, that's the whole reason why I write, really. It's to to be understood, to feel like I'm understanding other people. Uh, It's that way of connecting with the world. And now the way that we've spoken about the book for the past 10 minutes, <laughs> we, I don't want to say we've misled listeners, but <laughs> we've painted this as almost a paint by numbers coming of age story set during schoolies and before the beginning is anything but, and I want to pivot and I, but I, I want to avoid spoilers as well because it was so it was so wonderful having these elements sort of hit me as a reader for the first time and not expecting them. So (laughs) I'm putting in you, you, I'm going into this knowing I'm putting you in a very difficult sort of position as the answer of my questions. But I want to know where did Sierra come from? This character who is very mysterious and is almost the catalyst for all the others growth. I was expecting, you know, this standard coming of age novel and very quickly you immerse us in this world that has on its fringes an almost surreal aspect. How did this idea take shape? Yes, I'm I'm so glad that you picked up on that. It is hard to talk about these surreal aspects to the novel without giving way too many spoilers, but I'm I'm gonna try. Uh, so I suppose for me, this 
the other aspect to the book, other than these strong characters and, and the internal conflict that they're going through, the other part of the book is all about the ocean. And the ocean is connected to Schoolies Week because of the beach, but the ocean for me is a really magical and really strange place. Um, I've spent many summers uh, um, at my, I've spent many summers at my grandparents' house on the beach in New South Wales. And I've had so many uh, big transformative moments over those summers, like my characters do. And these very strange connections with nature where I've, you know, had strange encounters with uh, sea creatures or those moments where you're in the middle of a huge storm and you feel like you're minuscule, you're, you feel like you're, you're nothing compared to the, the power of nature. So I wanted my characters to experience some of that. And Sierra, I suppose, she's a, a local who they meet on the first night of schoolies, but she also opens up this other side to the natural world for them. She takes them away to this uninhabited island that no one has set foot on in years. And she has this kind of connection to the island that you don't quite understand as a reader and the characters don't, my characters don't quite understand. Um, and she invites them into this world where they're really uh, separate from the rest of um, the rest of society. They're not on the big schoolies party that's happening on the beach. And that forces them to go deeper internally, but that also forces them to have these um, moments of connection with nature that um, deepen the novel. And I, I wanted to explore all the different ways that nature has been um, seen throughout history and in different cultures and in different mythologies. And there's a lot about transformation and change and the sea that all weaves together. So I found that a really rich um, area to explore. And now, when Words and Nerds last spoke to you, you had just finished the first draft of Before the Beginning, and now it's here. You were excited about the editing process, and you said you were sure it was going to change a lot. Looking back on the editorial process in the year between interviews, did it actually change a lot? Yes, it changed so much. <laughs> I'm... I, I'm just thinking back to where the book would have been in January. It went through several big restructures and big edits and became such a better book. Uh, it was really interesting writing this book under, under contract with my publisher. So the first book I had heaps of time to work on on my own um, and then on my own with an agent for a while and then finally with the publisher. Whereas this book I had to write in about six months to write the first draft. And then we um, kept, uh, kept redrafting for another couple of months, I suppose. And to give you an idea, I think I was seriously writing the first book for about four years. So it was a very different timeline for me as a writer. And it also meant that I let in other editors much earlier in the process than I did with the first book. So they saw a first draft that was really a rough first draft whereas with the first one it had already been polished and worked on for years and you know, it still came across as a rough first draft to, <laughs> to other people, but um, to me I'd worked on it for a long time. Uh, but I actually found that really exciting and it's such a gift to be able to work with editors who are as invested as you are in, their, in your work and who see things that you don't see. So I'm really grateful that I got to do it that way and... Um, yeah, what changed the most, I mean, the whole book changed quite a lot, but what changed the most was the ending. Uh, so 
I, I can't even remember right. where the ending was at, but I, I had to come up, kind of feel my way to the, the right ending and my editors helped a lot with that. It's that one thing we can't talk about on the podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but that's really fascinating because I think we both had that same experience and we have the same publisher and we, re- we had one book that we, so I came to Hachette with Monuments and then this year had to write its sequel in six months, edit it quickly and then release it. My reaction to that is, oh my God, I never want to do that ever again. Like I can see where that pressure cooker created that particular product and I'm proud of the product, but at the same time, I'm like, I cannot do that again. I will have no hair left on my head by the end of the process. Do you think that you will do it again right under contract that way or do you want to take a break and sort of find the next story slowly? Yes, I'm relieved to hear you say that actually because my experience was quite similar. I'm, <laughs> I'm extremely proud of the book and I, uh, I think we created something wonderful in that time, but I could not do it. I couldn't do it straight away. I could do it again in the future, I think. Yeah. but not for my next book. I, and I am, that's the process I'm in at the moment, kind of slowly feeling my way to the, to the next book. And I am going to take my time with this one a little bit more. Uh, I really I have so much admiration for writers who can write a book a year. I think it's incredible. And I think I've, I've learned that I can be that writer occasionally, but definitely not all the time. Yeah. no, And it's, and it is important that sort of experimentation, but, I don't know what it was like for you with this book, but when I was working with Rebel Gods and I could tell, I knew sort of where I wanted the book to go, but if it didn't get there within two or three weeks, I was like, nah, too hard, delete that element, replace it with something else that I sort of could get a handle on. Did you find you were doing that yourself or were you sort of slavish to your vision as much as you could be? Mm, Yes, well... I think no matter what the deadline is, if I had all the time in the world, I would still get to the end and think, oh, it's not quite the book that I had in my head because Mm. the book that I have in my head at the start is a perfect book that does not exist and will never exist. (laughs) Uh, So I think you always discover the novel you're writing as you're writing it. Uh, I do think, well, for instance, at the very start, I was originally thinking I wanted to have a book told over one week with seven characters and each character narrating a different day. And I figured out very quickly that I could not create seven distinct voices and have them all narrate one day of the week and have that work uh, not in the, in the time that I had to write the book. Uh, but I might not have ever done that anyway. So it's hard to know what aspects of it were writing under the, under the deadline and Um, what parts of it are just the writing process, which is always going to be, for me at least, the writing process is always discovering uh, new ways of doing things and realising that your original vision isn't what the book's going to be and that's okay and maybe you discover something else that's surprising or exciting. Yeah, definitely. And now it's absolutely customary to bombard debut authors and those who've just released their second book with questions about second novel syndrome, a broad way of describing all the challenges that come with no longer having a theoretical audience, but a real one. 
And I'm going to continue in that long tradition and ask you how different or difficult you found the process of writing your second novel, knowing that there were reviewers and booksellers and avid readers of your debut waiting for a second book. I think the two books, because they were so close together, I don't know if I experienced second novel syndrome in quite the same way. I was still so in the process of writing the draft as the second one was coming out and being talked about that I kind of didn't have time to think too much about what the audience would think about it. And then by the time I processed the fact that there were people out there reading and, and waiting for this novel, um, it was too late and I'd already you know, sent the draft off to the publisher and we were getting through those next stages. It has been really exciting seeing people read uh, this book who loved the first book um, but it's also interesting seeing people who are saying, oh, it's not what I expected or it's different. And uh, obviously you're not going to write the same book twice. So, um, and I think that it is quite different. It's different in style. It's different in a few, several of the themes are different, uh, the structure and the voice. Uh, but I do think readers who like the first one will find lots of things that they like in before the beginning as well. I hope, I hope. I'm certain they will too. It was it was kind of this, the best kind of second book that you can write where I could see things that I loved about your style of writing in the first book, but in a different package and, you know, exploring different things. And I felt like you're really pushing yourself and your prose in the second book. So if you had any sort of misgivings or felt like it was rushed, it definitely doesn't come out on the page, which is sort of the best outcome, I guess. <laughs> yes, definitely. I'm really glad to hear you say that. I do think that I was a better writer the second time round, which you'd, you'd hope. Uh, and I was trying to push myself in some new directions. Yeah. And it's, look, you learn from your first book and then the first draft of your second book is much better than the first draft of your first book. And your first drafts will keep getting better. Um, but you also, the, the painful thing is you also become more critical of yourself because you know what you're capable of. So your standards rise as the quality of your writing improves. And then, so you're never satisfied, but the people who read your work are more impressed with every first draft. Yes, that's definitely been my experience. <laughs> it is hard to feel like you're getting better sometimes, but your taste is improving as well. That does, that does help. Now that you have two novels under your belt, you have a body of work to consider, you know, I hate to say it, but a brand to cultivate. What do you think makes an Anna Morgan book? Oh, that's such, a, such an exciting question. I think beautiful writing. Uh, I do try and write prose that I'm proud of and I'm, I'm a big reader. I love to read widely and I, uh, I'm always emulating um, other writers and thinking, oh, I wish I could write a sentence that beautiful and then maybe one sentence out of the whole, you know, 60, 70,000 words that I write, I'm like, yes, that is a sentence I'm really proud of. So I am always trying to write beautiful, uh, beautiful sentences, making something beautiful on every page. I think strong characters are part of my brand and then possibly something a bit weird. I feel like every book I write has to have some extra strange element 
in it. And for the first one, it was this unsolved mystery that I became completely obsessed with and became a almost non-fiction uh, element of the book as my characters are trying to solve this great unsolved mystery. Uh, and for the second book, it was all about the ocean and mythology and uh, the ways that, uh, you know, we've talked about change and transition with mermaids or other mythological sea creatures and how that can sort of weave into the character-driven story that um, my, my characters are going through on Schoolies Week. So I suppose they, they would be my three things that I'm always aiming to do, really beautiful writing, strong characters, and then some something really strange and bizarre that I've become obsessed with and I'm going to force all, more, all of my readers to become obsessed with as well while they're reading my book. Wonderful. I absolutely love that. And I think you've captured your brand really, really, really well. And that's the sort of thing that will keep people coming back to your books into the future. Speaking of, I know you've mentioned you're sort of exploring what your next book will be. Is it too early for us to ask what's next? Uh, it's not too early to ask, but it will probably be quite an unsatisfying answer. I'm sorry, because I still don't really know what it is. Uh, I, I really loved writing about the natural world in this book. Um, and I also, uh, just while the podcast was being released at the start of this year, um, I was actually on the run with my family from the bushfires that were uh, raging down the coast of New South Wales. And having that really intense experience of being uh, in this huge natural disaster, uh, it, was, it was a very transformative experience for me and one that I'm still kind of processing and thinking about writing about maybe not necessarily bushfires, but uh, the way that we interact with the natural world and the way that teenagers do. And for teenagers right now, I think the biggest thing that most of us are thinking about, um, even in this year where COVID has taken over everything, but uh, we're all thinking about climate change and our, our relationship with the natural world. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. I would love to write more um, set in, in Australia and set possibly in the natural world in Australia um, and definitely still character driven. Um, and there's a few other weird things, but I, I don't think I can say what, what they are because I don't know really what kind of seeds they'll grow into. So it's all, it's all incubating in its greenhouse at the moment and we'll see what comes up. Well, we look forward to reading it when it is eventually released. Thank you so much for your time today, Anna. We really enjoyed speaking with you. Anna Morgan's young adult novels, All That Impossible Space and Before the Beginning are available from all good bookstores now.